for today. We're grateful for your presence and hope you'll come back again. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We're so thankful that you've chosen to come our way today. I do want to just take this opportunity. I know that the end of the year is here. Hard to believe that 2017 is about over. And I want to just express how much I appreciate each and every one of you. I appreciate all the work that has gone on over the past year. I'm thankful for our elders and their work, their prayers. Appreciate our deacons. I want to thank each of you that teach our classes. All the work that has gone on over the past year, our VBS, all the planning and work. I know that we've been involved in trying to provide Christmas gifts for a number of children. Last Monday night, a number of you came and really sacrificed your evening to wrap presents. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here for that. You didn't have to do it, but you did. And so I want you to know I, I thank you for that. And there are, so many, there are so many things that I probably should say in terms of being grateful for all that you do, but I do want you to know that you're much appreciated. And the church here, if it's going to be what the Lord would have it to be, it has to have working members. And so for all of you who work, all the prayers, the cards, all the things that are done behind the scenes, it is truly appreciated. And so thank you very, very much. I want you to look with me to, today at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Someone has said that if you didn't know better, you would think that Isaiah happened to be a writer in the New Testament. And I think there's a lot to be said for that statement. Because in a very graphic and picturesque way, Isaiah presents for us a picture of Jesus, the Messiah. And really he talks about not just the birth of the king, but the suffering of the king. In a very vivid and graphic way, Isaiah brings us face to face with the promised Messiah. And as you think about the promises that were made throughout the Old Testament scriptures, Regarding the coming of the king, the promised seed, everything that was said about the coming of this promised one was fulfilled. And so, as we look at scripture, we give thanks for the promises of God and the fact that God has the ability, the power, to bring to pass that which he has said he would do. And that ought to give us a lot of encouragement and inspiration. I want to begin our study today by first of all talking about the announcement of the Messiah. Listen if you would to what Isaiah says in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I think a couple of things regarding this great statement. The first has to do with God's golden gift. Isaiah, some 750 years before the Messiah would emerge on the scene, tells us of the birth of this chosen one. 
Unto us a child is born. The nature of his birth. Unlike any other birth prior to that time and afterward. You see, Isaiah said in chapter 7 at verse 14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall be called Emmanuel. Over in the book of Matthew in chapter 1, Matthew documents the seed line of the Christ. And he tells us that that which was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And he said all of this was done that it might be fulfilled that was spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, being translated or interpreted. God with us. God in human flesh. Do you remember in John chapter 1 when John said, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In verse 14 he said, And the Word, that eternal being, he said, became flesh and dwelt among us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, the writer there talking about the Christ said with regard to the nature of his birth and his entrance into the world. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. A body was prepared for the second member of the Godhead in the womb of Mary. And so we talk about the virgin birth. And so you think about God's golden gift to the human family. But then also God's gracious gift. The necessity of this birth. We talk about the nature of his birth, but what about the necessity of his birth? Was it mandatory that God have a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the human family? Well, the answer would be yes. Have you ever asked the question, why was Jesus born? Why did he need to be born? I want to submit to you today that Jesus was born to reconcile us. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, All things are of God, who has reconciled all things to himself by Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one that made it possible for us to be reconciled to the Father. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When man sinned in the garden, separation occurred, didn't it? The Bible tells us that death made its inception into the world. Physically, men began to die. Spiritually, man did die. And so God announced the promised seed in chapter 3, verse 15. That promised seed was not something that God immediately came up with on the scene. But rather, the promised seed was born in the mind of God before he ever laid the foundation of the world. Peter said, who verily was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times 
for you. Jesus, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. Reconciliation made possible because Jesus willingly, submissively, humbly was willing to come to earth to be born. And so we ask the question, why the necessity of his birth? Well, Jesus was born to reconcile us. And secondly, he was born to redeem us. Again, looking at 1 Peter, Peter tells us that Jesus was sacrificed for us. He was that lamb without spot, without blemish. He paid the price of our redemption. Do you remember when the angel of God spoke to Joseph in that dream? As recorded by Matthew in chapter 1. And he said, speaking of Mary, that she would bring forth a son. And he said, she shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. So Jesus came to reconcile and to redeem. And he did it effectively. Paul would write in Ephesians 1 verse 7, that it's in Jesus that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We talk about the marvelous, matchless grace of God and the fact that God was willing to save us and the agent by which he chose to save us, his son. John would write in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. And so the announcement of the Messiah. But then secondly, think about the attributes of the Messiah. Isaiah said again some 750 years before the Messiah would be born. He said, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And then he identifies the character of this Messiah. Some of the characteristics that would lend insight into his nature. The nature of deity. He said he shall be called wonderful. The word wonderful. The root of this term is found in the Old Testament in connection with some of the wonders and signs and miracles that were done in ancient Egypt. Do you remember when God, with an outstretched arm, redeemed the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage? And you think about all of the great miracles and wonders that were done in the presence of Pharaoh and the people of his court. Well, Jesus is not just a wonder, but the Bible says he is wonderful. He is, as we would say, incomparable. You ever thought about trying to somehow detail the wonders, the amazing things that Jesus did in his life? Do you remember it was said of him on one occasion that he does all things well? On another occasion, it was said of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. He was an amazing individual, a wonder to behold. 
And yes, as Isaiah said, he is wonderful. But then he says, not only is he wonderful, but he is a counselor. Someone of honorable rank. Think about in our day and time. We have a president, senators, congressmen, and other political figures. And typically, they will have a group of men and women that will function as advisors, counselors, and someone who is in political office will look to them for guidance and counsel, strive to draw from their wisdom. What Isaiah is saying here is that Jesus is a counselor that he has the ability to counsel, to guide, to advise the affairs of the human family. Do you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life? And the Bible says that many of those Jews on that occasion had difficulty with what he was saying. And John said, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus then asked the question, will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. Peter and the other apostles understood that what Jesus had to say was of extreme benefit. Matter of fact, no one else has the ability to counsel and guide, to safeguard us like Jesus. Ever thought about how when we obey the gospel, literally we commit our lives into the safekeeping of the Lord, don't we? Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 4 about committing our souls into the hands of a faithful creator. So we are giving ourselves to the Lord. So Jesus is identified as wonderful, counselor, Mighty God. The idea here is that he is a heroic God. He is a God of might and power. Did Jesus not demonstrate his incredible power over various realms of life? Do you remember when Jesus turned water into wine? Demonstrating his power over matter? What about when he walked on the sea? Demonstrating his power over nature. What about when Jesus had the ability to give sight to a man who had been born blind, his power over illness and disease? When he cast out demons, his power over the demonic realm. And then I think about raising Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating his power over death. And John would say in John chapter 20, Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but he said, these are written. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing in him, you might have life through his name. And so, the incredible power and might, and I would emphasize the fact that Jesus is identified as the mighty God. 
God incarnate. The second member of the Godhead who emptied himself, taking upon himself human flesh. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 1 and about verse 8, speaking of Christ, he said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus was and is deity. He is God. When he asked Peter and the other apostles what men were saying about him in the first century, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he wanted to know, what do you think about me? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting Father. Which I think shows his paternal side. The fact that Jesus in some respects, is like a parent or father toward us. And I think the idea is that Jesus has the ability to give us what we need, to care for us, to sustain us, to lift us up, just like a father and mother cares and nurtures for their children. The Lord cares for every one of us. As Peter said, casting all your care on him. Why? He cares for you. And then finally, the Prince of Peace. Did you know that Jesus Christ is the means for peace between us and God? He came to bring peace. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, for he himself, listen to him, is our peace. In the garden, man became separated from his God. Sin separates us from God, but we enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 5. So when we obey the gospel of Christ, contacting his blood, we enjoy, as Paul would say, the peace that passes all understanding in Philippians chapter 4. I want you to think about something for a minute. When Jesus was born nearly 2,000 years ago, the angels of God praised his birth, didn't they? They said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill toward man. Jesus came to bring peace to you. But then also he provides the platform for peace between members of the human family. Look at all of the problems that we have in our, in our world today. I think about the social and racial barriers that have been erected by men and women in our world. Such was the case in the first century. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus engaged in dialogue with that woman at Jacob's well? And the Bible identifies her as a Samaritan. The Samaritans in the minds of the Jews were half-breeds. And John says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They didn't like them. They looked down on them. And there was a barrier between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then you think about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were viewed by the Jewish people as dogs. 
They despised them. So here were these barriers that had been erected by people in the first century. And prior to that. And yet when Jesus came, the Bible says, His purpose was to reconcile both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. You want peace in our world? Do you want want to live in a world where people can peaceably get along with one another? The answer is the gospel of Christ, the teaching of Jesus. Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, said, speaking of those who have been baptized into Christ, he said, in that context, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female. He said, for you're all one in Christ. And he said, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. That is, that promise that had been made 2,000 years earlier to the great patriarch, Abraham. Because God called Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew nation. That promise that was made, that in him all nations of the earth, families of the earth would be blessed, found its fulfillment in Christ. Because Paul said, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So Jesus is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Third thing that I want to share with you. The first has to do with the announcement of the Messiah. The second, of course, would deal with the attributes of the, of the Messiah. And then thirdly, the authority of the Messiah. Listen again to what Isaiah writes. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Let me just pause here. First, Isaiah deals with the pedigree of the Messiah's kingdom. I mentioned a moment ago, a promise was made to Abraham. That promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 simply signified that he would be the father of the Hebrew people. God needed a people to bring the Messiah into the world. So God designated Abraham. And that seed line would run through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, God made a choice. The Messiah, the promised seed, would come through the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49. And then, in a very specific way, he said the Christ, the Messiah, would come through the family of David. God promised David many years ago that after his years were fulfilled and he rested with his fathers, he said, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. And he said, I will establish his kingdom and he'll build a house for my name. And he said of that great kingdom that it would would stand forever. The throne of that kingdom would reign forever. And so 
in terms of pedigree. The Messiah would come through the family of David. We talk about his lineage. But then Isaiah also addresses the perpetuity of the Messiah's kingdom. Listen again to what he says of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel stood in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar? The king had a dream. He didn't understand the contents of that dream. Daniel, with God's help, interpreted that dream, didn't he? And Daniel basically said, look, I see four world empires, beginning with that great Babylonian empire. And he said, Babylon's going to give way to the Medes and the Persians, who in turn will give way to the Grecians. The Grecians then will yield to the Roman Empire. And so we can say in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Do you remember when John the Baptist began his preaching ministry? His message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus echoing the very same message in Matthew chapter 4, the kingdom being at hand. And Jesus would say, there are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. That kingdom was established on Pentecost Day. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that when Jesus comes, He's coming not to set up a kingdom, but rather He's coming to deliver up the kingdom. He'll deliver it up to God the Father. So we talk about the pedigree of the Messiah's kingdom, the perpetuity of the Messiah's kingdom, the longevity of this kingdom, and the power of the Messiah's kingdom. The Bible says the government will be upon his shoulder. The Bible says upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. The Lordship of Jesus. On Pentecost Day when Peter preached along with the other apostles to that great multitude of people assembled in Jerusalem to observe Pentecost, Peter preached the resurrected Christ, didn't he? And he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, he said, God has made both Lord and Christ. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, his lordship unquestioned from a biblical standpoint. And then finally, the precepts of the Messiah's kingdom. That is, his laws. The Bible says, regarding the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forth, or rather from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, God in his greatness and power and providence brought this thing to a reality. And with regard to the precepts of the laws of the king, back in chapter 2 of Isaiah, Isaiah saw the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. And they would say, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. 
He said, he'll teach us his ways. We'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's church began where? In Jerusalem. It began with a law. A new law. The law of Christ. And do you remember Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 when he foresaw the new covenant that would be executed by Jesus? He said, I will put their laws into into their minds. I'll write them upon their hearts. The law of the king. If you're a king, you have to have a kingdom. If you're a king, you have to have laws, don't you? So today we're under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. So I want to ask you today, in light of what the Bible has to say about the promised Messiah, have you embraced Jesus as the Son of God? Have you determined within your own life that you're going to live for Him? You see, the Bible says He came to save you from sin. He came to save all of us from sin and unrighteousness. What would you need to do to become one of His children? Very easy. Number one, you've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John 8, verse 24. Faith, of course, comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And then to repent, to turn from sin. To confess with your mouth that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. To be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away. And you can enjoy the blessings of forgiveness. Isaiah talks about, though your sins be as scarlet, he said, they shall be white as snow. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven. If you're here today and your life is not what it ought to be, And you know you need the prayers of the church. Listen, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And God will abundantly pardon 1 John 1 verse 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?